The uh, scripture reading today comes from 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 through 25. Again, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Good morning. Uh, join me in prayer, please. Our Heavenly Father, as we worship you together this beautiful morning, anoint your Holy Spirit upon us that we may be refreshed and strengthened in your grace. your truth and your peace as we share this message of the gospel give us wisdom and faith that we may keep following you in this troubled world pray in Jesus name Amen as I uh, prepare this sermon I had to think again about how foolish the Christian faith could be seemed. I mean, how much it is not attractive for the world to accept it or even acknowledge it. Thinking again about a father who had made decision to sacrifice his innocent son for the evil. Thinking about blessing those who curse, blame, and violent, and about defeating the evil by the goodness of God. I had to think about a person resurrecting from the dead. I had to because what, what I just have said are what we believe as Christians, the core of Christian doctrines 
are they persuasive to the world or not? What Jesus and his disciples proclaimed was and is that persuasive to the world and even to Christians or not? The more we get honest on what we believe, even as Mennonites, as peace Christians, it is not so much persuasive or attractive to the world. No, thinking of those is needed for Christians because Christians need to clearly understand what they believe and what they proclaim in the world. Today's passage vividly tells us how challenging was the message of the gospel for the Jews and the Greeks, which also could mean the Gentiles at the time. 1 Corinthians 1, 23 says, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. So, Paul, as well as other apostles, and most of all, Christ himself must have known well enough how difficult to accept the message of the gospel proper. They did not expect the message of the gospel could be widely accepted in the world, but believed that the God's people, the elect, would anyhow respond to the message. Why? That was because they knew the message of the gospel was not attractive to the world at all. A savior crucified? A crucified son of God? It was something like a stumbling block and foolishness. But they, apostles and disciples, they had to proclaim it because they were sent and commissioned as they could experience the power in the message. Yes, they did experience it. Peter said to Sanhedrin, the highest council of the Jews in Jesus' time, that he could not help but proclaim what he had seen and heard. Through what was deemed as foolish and stumbling, they did experience God's liberating and saving power, being freed from all those varieties of entangling idolatries from which the law of Moses and the wisdom of Greek could not save. Since they could taste the saving power in the message of the gospel, which seemed as foolish, they had to raise their voice because, because it was true that that unseemly message indeed had the power of salvation. And that was divine paradox. Having that being said, I want to also proclaim a few points for our own time. As a struggling sinner, yet a child of God, previously a Presbyterian, but now a gospel-holding Mennonite, there are some meaningful convictions in me that I need to proclaim from what I have seen and heard. It may sound foolish and stumbling even, but I believe sharing and proclaiming those convictions in me is needed, so accept me as I am. 
First, the Bible is sufficient enough for salvation by itself. One of the most refreshing questions I ever heard as I had been discerning for the transition from Presbyterian to Mennonite was this. Is it impossible to be saved without knowing Augustine, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Karl Barth, or Menno Simons, etc.? If now here are some, if we have some theologians here to them, this question could sound almost as blasphemy and utterly ignorant question because those reformers are too much important for some theologians in understanding Christianity and the Bible, even sadly sometimes more than Jesus himself. Even while I still respect those reformers, I'm also now a little bit frustrated by too much only intellectual approach to Christian faith, quite often ignoring the canon of our faith, the Bible, and its only theme, Jesus Christ. I would ask that question one more time. Is it impossible for Christians to be saved without knowing, learning, and understanding those representative theologians and reformers or any important theology? No, it is not. The Bible is still enough and good enough in saving God's people as well as the world. The Bible, yes, it is a very old book, and the time gap within the Bible and, the, and between the time of the Bible and our own time is never overlookable. And yes, there are texts in the Bible which are almost impossible to understand without some study of history and cultural backgrounds. And yes, there are passages in the Bible which could be misunderstood and become abusive and violent. Nonetheless, the reason why the Bible is still good, strong, and reliable enough for the salvation is that it contains Jesus Christ. The Son of God and the Gospel of Jesus and his, his apostles. Referring to theology and theologians is a good thing, but no theologians and no theological arguments can match the Bible in understanding God, God's will, God's love, and his saving power. Dwight Lyman Moody's famous quote on the Bible, the Bible will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from the Bible. So true. As overwhelming upheavals happening in our time, right? More careful, more Christ-centered, more gospel-centered, more peacemaking-centered, hermeneutic interpretation is needed. I cannot deny that. Even still, that tough reality by no means means that the Bible is no more powerful enough by itself in understanding and realizing God's great will. The more the challenges of our time threatens and overwhelms Christians, the more Christians are to delve into the Bible deeply based on the grace, the truth, and the peace of Jesus Christ. I want to give a simple warning. Avoid both extremes, being too pop and being too scholarly. Being too pop means being caught up by kind of anti-intellectualism. 
God has given us a reason, and with this reason, we can think, analyze, compare, contrast, experiment, and assess. So, closing your eyes and ears to realities and various arguments and ignoring all those voices as a whole is preventing people from becoming a good and mature Christian. Being pop Christians means that you don't think on your own, but only listening, listening to those who are close to you. Being pop Christian means not so much reading the Bible, not making effort to understand and practice what it says, and not trying to follow Christ, our Savior. One of the best ways to describe for being a pop Christian is this. Make it easy and selfish as possible without thinking the Bible, the word, your neighbors, your Christian brothers and sisters, and the brokenness and the sin of the word seriously. That's popular Christianity. The other one is overly scholarly Christianity. This is as harmful as pop Christianity because it makes core Christian beliefs so dim. Resurrection, incarnation, suffering of Christ, God is the creator of the whole universe. All the central teachings of Christianity become dim in too much scholarly approach since all those core doctrines does not seem as reasonable in common sense in this world. Those overly intellectual Christians, including not a few theologians, tend to judge and correct the Bible rather than being judged and corrected by the Bible. The point is this. Make balance and tread the middle way between the pop and the overly scholarly Christianities. Both of them do not pay enough attention or do not give enough respect to the Bible. That's the clear common ground of them, that ignoring the Bible in anti-intellectualism or in pro-intellectualism. We need intelligence to overcome our own blindness and ignorance, but also in pursuing intelligence in Christ we must avoid its hubris, its arrogance, its pride, which is another kind of ignorance. Please do not forget this. The first and primary attack of Satan is to tear down and demolish the life-giving and saving authority of the Bible. With the authority of the Bible, some Christian leaders today tend to underestimate also the authority of the Old Testament. My best solution for that is this verse, John chapter 5, 39. Jesus said, you search the scriptures, means the Old Testament, because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they, the Old Testament, that bear witness about me. That's what Jesus said. So Jesus himself has made it manifest that the Old Testament obviously bears witness about Jesus Christ, and then how can we abandon and underestimate the Old Testament? It demands more careful attention. Yes, it is. But still, I believe it is about Jesus Christ. As you believe this and open your hearts and souls to the Old Testament and keep reading it, 
you will find wonderful refreshment and nourishment from reading and meditating the Old Testament, I bet, since there are countless verses in the Old Testament that are dazzling and make great harmony with the message of the gospel. Second, I see a certain attempt among liberal believers to separate Jesus and Paul. It sounds like those people are willing to follow Jesus' radical love in the Sermon on the Mount, but unwilling to learn from Paul, who was bold enough in his evangelism. Paul was bold, wasn't he? But since that boldness in his evangelism could cause conflicts in the world, in its bold and straightforward proclamation of the message of the gospel, liberal believers tend to reject Paul and try to underestimate Paul's apostleship, and that's no Christian belief at all. To make it fair as much as possible, I'm open to partly defend those liberal believers. When I was a Presbyterian, when I had been hearing from the pulpit was mostly of what Paul said rather than what Jesus said. It was quite rare for me to hear about what Jesus said compared to what Paul said, and that became a reason for me to come to Mennonite, who hold Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount at their heart. It, it still is that in mainstream Christianity, what has been being proclaimed is more of Paul than more of Jesus. I think that's a fact. The authority of Jesus must outpower the authority of Paul in our reading the Bible, of course. Our Savior is not Paul, but Jesus. But after I came to Mennonite, what, have been see what I have been seeing and hearing from the liberal believers is that we do not need to listen to Paul, but only Jesus is enough. That is another problem. From a classroom in AMBS, I heard from a student that why we should read Paul. He was a misogynist. And the professor in the room, whom I still admire, did no defense for Paul at all. I felt it was insanely and painfully unfair for Paul. With another professor in AMBS, I had a conversation about Paul, and she told me that she could not acknowledge the full apostleship of Paul, because Paul had never seen Jesus face to face, I mean in person, but only in his visions. It is very true that among liberal believers, Paul's status as an apostle and his teaching about the message of the gospel has been underestimated and suffered heavy blows. As I had been exposed to that kind of atmosphere which looks down on Paul, I had to ponder on that issue. I had to process. Honestly, the liberal believers have some solid ground in their insistence. Why? In thorough and meticulous reading of the New Testament, one must find some critical gap between what Jesus said and what Paul said. One example, Jesus said, in Matthew 7.21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. With this verse, there are numerous verses in which Jesus emphasized the significance of action and obedience. 
And Paul said in Galatians 2.15, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. In verse 21, Paul said, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Wow. So we can find a certain gap in our thorough and meticulous reading of the New Testament. There are three helpful biblical solutions in this oddity. First, the context. Jesus confronted the corrupted Jewish religious leaders of his time who were mostly hypocrites and not doing what they taught. Paul's context was mostly in his Gentile mission for those who never knew about God of the Old Testament at all. And that immense difference of those two contexts make it possible to understand why Jesus and Paul, their message had to differ to each other. Second, understanding Paul aright is more needed. Most people would think that Paul only emphasized grace, but not so much good works and obedience, which is by no means true. Romans, which is known as the book in which justification by faith is proclaimed so loud. However, if you pay attention, it starts and it's ending. You will see how much Paul emphasized obedience. In Romans 1, in his greeting, Paul said, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. That is the very first of Romans. Paul starts the book of Romans with the, with the obedience of faith. And the ending of Romans, which is deemed as doxology, Romans 16, 25, 27, the last three verses of Romans, Paul concludes, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has now had but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the commands of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. So we can see the obedience of faith is beautifully and powerfully bracketing the whole book of Romans indeed, not only justification by faith. And actually, what Paul opposed was not the importance of good works, but the works of the Mosaic law. Understanding this is also critical. One of Paul's latest letters is Titus. As I taught this epistle of Paul with the inmates in the jail repeatedly, 
I could find how integral is this three-chapter letter in understanding Paul aright. You know, once I preached on Philemon, and thankfully, one of our members told me that she could find through the sermon the value of Philemon as a jewelry. I was happy with that comment. So is Titus, chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. The focus is coherently on doing good works, and Apostle Paul did his best to encourage Christians to do good works in the world. I would call Titus as a Mennonite epistle. So Paul did not only emphasize faith and grace, but also obedience and actions of faith and grace. Paul, who proclaimed so boldly about the amazing free grace of Jesus, also strictly said at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3.10, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. That doesn't sound only gracious, does that? And finally, to defend Apostle Paul, Paul was commissioned by Jesus. In the Bible, his apostleship was given by Jesus, and it is manifest enough in the Bible. So if anyone denies and weakens the apostleship of Paul, then that one also automatically weakens the authority of Jesus Christ, who sent Paul as the apostle of the Gentiles. Some mainstream churches overemphasize Paul, even not paying enough attention what Jesus said, which is seriously problematic. The vice versa, though, also must be avoided. Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, and Paul was sent by that Savior. Now, third and last proclamation for today. Before I start the last point in earnest, I would introduce a mission ministry from one of my closest friends, He's been working as a missionary belong to New Tribe Mission, now Ethnos 360, it changes his title, sent to Papua, Indonesia. He sent me a video clip to share the ministry and to request prayers for the ministry. And that video has given me an impact, letting me think that still, there are not a few sincere Christians who commit themselves for the mission for Jesus Christ and his gospel. My friend's name is Gwanghyun Kim. We grew together in the same church more than 10 years through our teenager time. He works with another family as a team, and the name of the husband of the family is Jeremy Walker. And Gwanghyun told me that due to the visa issue, uh, Jeremy is currently living in U.S. Indiana. So I became more interested and could communicate with Jeremy recently and learned more about their ministry. They serve people in Homang village in Papua, Indonesia. Let me introduce briefly about their ministry. 안녕하세요. 파푸아에서 섬기고 있는 김광현 성혜정 선교사입니다. 저희와 함께 부족 선교를 위해서 기도와 또 yeah, so he's introducing himself that we are so appreciating that your help for your prayer. And now with technology, we can explain our ministry with this Google map, thanks to that technology. 
So briefly, I'll introduce about our ministry. Where we stayed in Papua, Indonesia. And about the Homang village, Aoyu people. So U.S. is so huge, so we start with from California. We fly from California. About 10 hours to South Korea, or you can come to Japan as well. And seven hours flying from Seoul to Indonesia. So from seven hours from South Korea to Indonesia, the Java Island, which is big, Jakarta. And another seven hours from Jakarta to Papua Island. It's South Pacific. It's island, but eight times bigger than South Korea. It's a big island. North of Papua is jungle, and middle is most mountains, and the south part is mostly swamps and wetland. There are about 800 tribes who have different languages and cultures. So there was no government before Second World War, and, and after Second World War, uh, no, as the, the Japan, uh, Japan, Japan occupied it before they made the Pacific War, but after the Second World War II, uh, the east of Papua reigned by Australia, and west of Papua was occupied by Indonesian government. Now we are staying in the west of Papua. Jayakura is kind of city in Papua Island. And we stay there and uh, learning about their language and culture, also doing stu a Bible study with some tribes in Papua Island who comes and visit the Jayakura uh, city. The place of Aoyu, Homang village, from Jayakura, two hour flight to Mari Mariuke. So from Marauke with a Cessna float, two hours. Edge village. And from that edge village, with motor canoe, we go to Homang village. About an hour with motor canoe. And we also use another river. That bigger river is about 100 meter width, and that small river is width about 30 meters. 
So one and one and a half hour about. And that is Homang village. Around that place is almost swamps and wetland. And we are planning to go to that village and we will stay there and live there for those Homang village and to interpret the Bible, to teach them the Bible with, to their culture and to their language. And that place we are planning to make airstrip for Cessna. But from last year, um, COVID-19 had a visa issue, so we had to go back, come back to South Korea, and we are now staying in South Korea uh, to prepare the visa renewal. So we are praying to go back to that place to preach the gospel for those people. Yep. Next clip. So these guys, we have measured and painted these sticks kind of going down that direction so that we know the outside edge of the strip and now we're measuring at a 90 degree across 40 meters so they know how wide to open the strip up so we've used the measured 90 degrees on our gps and got the degree the angle there found the tree that's off at the angle and now they're cleaning up everything in between here and there so we can pull the tape out and measure the 40 meters these guys are awesome. They're workhorses. They got so much samanga, it's ridiculous. Even the women are out here working. But yeah, this, this is pretty sweet. They're just crazy land clearing folks. Okay, so we're wanting to line up with, uh, we've shot our, our uh, compass, and we want to line up with this white tree that's kind of at an angle there. Yeah, this is sent by uh, Jeremy. Yeah, the, the upper family is Gwangyeon Kim's family. Actually, his wife introduced me, Shinei, my wife. And the lower picture is Jeremy's family, who's now staying in Indiana. Thank you, Gwen. The third point is about the mission of the church, committed to the message of the gospel. Mennonites have been excellent in their serving local and global society. I have no question of that. Actually, I admire it. The social works, all those, still, goodness, I was overwhelmed when I learned that how long MCC has been helping North Korea with all those meat cans, providing all those orphanages in North Korea more than 15 years. That was fascinating. But at the same time, I'm doubtful related to the mission of the gospel among Mennonite people recently. One of my friends who had been preparing to be a missionary told me that a big Mennonite organization told him that they would support him, but then later what they told him was if it was related to converting people to Christian faith, then they could not support him because making conversion into Christianity is not their primary focus. At the first place, I acknowledge that in many aspects in history, Christian mission has not so much, not had been so much humble, gentle, or culturally appropriate enough. More of colonialism or culturally arrogant. 
However, that immaturity does not mean that the mission itself was wrong. Then what is needed is to make Christian mission and evangelism more humble, communicable, gentle, going with good social works, and more compassionate. It is not easy to imagine a church without Sunday worship. In John 4.23, Jesus said, God searches for the worshipers who worship God in spirit and in truth. Then we also need to think why God searches for those who worship God in spirit and in truth. Why? It's because to send them for God's mission. That's why we call Jesus' last command as the Great Commission. Without Christian mission, church is not anymore church. Wilbur Schenk, a Mennonite missiologist, strongly emphasizes good works, it's important. And we are called to do good works in our society. That's very true. But only social good works are, but only social good works are enough for the church, even without clear proclamation of the message of the gospel. It is not. Through being involved in mission works, the church can be renewed, strengthened, and refreshed because that mission for the message of the gospel is directly connected to the core of Christian identity in the world. Jesus was sent by the Father, Father God, Yahweh, in the Old Testament. The apostles and disciples were sent by Jesus into Roman Empire as well as many Gentile territories. Just like that, the church is a sent community into the world by the triune God for the message of the gospel in which God's saving love and power is manifest. The mission of the church must not be limited by only good social works, but must be with the proclamation of the message of the gospel that God the Father sent his one and only Son, Jesus, and the Son of God. Jesus died on the cross in the place of sinners like us to save them and resurrected and will come again as the New and the Old Testament testifies about. Coming back to the title of the sermon today, I do believe that the Lord God, the Father of Jesus Christ, whose name is Yahweh, is undoubtedly pleased to save his people and the world through the foolishness of the proclamation. David Garland, who is a New Testament professor in Baylor University, said, What the world finds impressive and irresistible are sensory spectacles and demonstrations of irrefutable proof. That is not what God offers in the cross. It confounds both Jews and Greeks. To be sure, those riddled with pride will reach false conclusions about God. But Paul's main point here is that the message of the cross puts all human pretensions to shame and upends the traditions and cultural values of both Jews and Greeks and of the Romans as well. God's work can be grasped, grasped only by faith. Richard Hayes, who taught at Duke University and has been being involved in a peacemaking movement in North, Northeast Asia with MCC, 
and also one of, one of the most influential and authoritative New Testament scholar in our time said, Paul's language throughout this section revels in the paradoxical twists of God's grace. This is not, however, just a Pauline rhetorical tour de force. The fundamental theological point is that if the cross itself is God's saving event, all human standards of evaluation are overturned. This outlandish message confounds Jews and Greeks alike, who quite understandably seek evidence of, of, of a more credible sort, either empirical demonstrations of power, signs, or rationally persuasive argumentation, wisdom. But the apostle offers neither. Instead, we proclaim Christ crucified. We need to understand more clearly that Christian beliefs and its distinctive doctrines are not acceptable to the world today also. Following a savior who was crucified must not be attractive to anyone, I mean in common sense of this word. We need to see it as it is. However, for Christians, for those who believe, love, and obey Jesus Christ, the proclamation of the Bible, the gospel, the apostles is still the sound of eternal salvation. I earnestly hope that the proclamation I have done today may come meaningful to God's people while it could seem as outlandish, bizarre, weak, and foolish to the world. Let us pray. Remember, Lord, that your weakness is stronger than human strength, and your foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. And on the cross, the foolishness and weakness of God is revealed manifest, and we hold fast that. Lord, give us your wisdom and your peace that we may have better understanding and practice in this paradoxical truth. But as Christians, Lord, protect and preserve our identity as Christians, your children, that we may shine your light in this troubled world, especially so precious message of the gospel. We may not be ashamed. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.